Welcome to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Pod So One. introduce our next guest i'd like to encourage you to go to our website at podso1.io and if you click talk to us uh there should be a feedback form and we'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we've been doing uh who we've been talking to what we've been doing so uh let us know and uh we'd really appreciate it so cool this week we have chris young on to talk about growing up in small town mississippi and his string of accolades that he has since collected including being the three-times winner of the Yes Mississippi Award, the third-ranked high school football player in the state of Mississippi, and the highest-ever-rated athlete to sign with Vanderbilt, where he played with Jay Cutler, among others. The first part of this episode was recorded before the death of George Floyd, so we had Chris come back on along with his wife Lauren for an addendum for them to share their thoughts on the current moment. So here's Chris. All right, so I really want to talk about you growing up in Mississippi. All right. I really want to talk so, about your, your journey for football. All right. I think we can talk about your family if you want to. That could be your immediate family. It could be your broader family. Uh, and then we can talk about what it's been like for you the last couple of months with this pandemic craziness. Oh, okay. That's an interesting story in and of itself. Okay. <clears throat> so, um I'd like to keep it as conversational as possible. So ask questions as they come up. But um, I, I grew up in Mississippi, as Paul mentioned. Um, I am the third of seven children. Ooh. I have five brothers and one sister. We all grew up in the same little trailer house in uh, Batesville, Mississippi. Uh, and Batesville in and of itself um, isn't very spectacular. There's like 7,500 people there and uh our chief exports are caskets and high school football players we put tons and tons of uh high school football players into colleges or in the potential for colleges uh so it was one of those college towns uh, i think um some country singer described it as a water tower town that's literally what it was um my dad worked in a factory my mom in my early years was a custodian at the school that that my brothers and sister and I went to. And oddly enough, I ended up being a janitor for like seven years of my life from the time I was in the fourth grade to the time I was in the 11th grade. That was kind of my first job. I would uh, stay after school and help my mom clean up after my peers uh, for like seven years of my life, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. I never really thought it was odd, but saying it out loud now seems a little bit kind of out of place but whatever yeah i mean did you ever get made fun of by your friends no um actually the friends that i had were the right type of friends for me so i i, I feel like um god kind of ordained that the way he was going to the friends that i had would actually stay and help like they would stay behind and help for hours and the only reason i stopped in the 11th grade was i became the starting quarterback on the high school team and so i couldn't stay late to do it, but the same friends that would stay behind starting in like fifth or sixth grade, um, they were there as frequently as I was there. And so uh, it was kind of just like, um, I don't know, a play date as we got older. Um, 
and so yeah, it was it was it was normal for for us as it as it turned out. But kind of going through life in Mississippi was probably like going through life uh, in a lot of different places. You know, especially if you're if you're broke, you try and figure out things to do. Uh, luckily for me, I had plenty of playmates, and um, my my older brothers were pretty cool. They would kick my ass. Um, whenever they whenever they saw fit and I would kick my little brother's asses when I saw fit so that's kind of the way things roll uh, for a little while Um, one of the fondest memories growing up was trying to play football I sucked at football by the way growing up I was let's explore that what do you you mean you sucked like I was always injured I could not run very fast um, like they made me play quarterback all the time. I was all time quarterback for both teams when we played in our front yard. Like I was just not very good until this one time in sixth, sixth grade, summer before sixth grade, um, my cousin who is now in prison serving a 40 year sentence for attempted murder, um, ran down to tackle me, fell on top of me and broke my leg. Mm. Um, the only thing I remember about breaking my leg in that particular moment, though, was the the shoe that I had on was flipping up in the air in slow motion. And it was like a, a crazy movie. But, yeah, completely broken my leg. My big brother carried me in the house. My dad yelled at me, you broke your damn leg. Ah, and he put me in the back room. And I was like, well, my leg is broken. I'm in complete pain, probably in shock. I'm looking out the window and they're still playing football. So I was like, <laughs> what the hell? Uh, ended up eventually. What's up? No, I was going to say, uh, was anybody with, with you while you had a broken leg? I mean, it sounds like you no, totally no, broke was, your leg. I broke my leg. I'm sitting in the back. I guess my parents were trying to figure out what to do. But eventually, later that night, I guess it was maybe three or four hours later, I'm sitting back there in pain. Uh, they take me to the hospital, uh, and they do an x-ray, and it's broken. So my entire sixth grade year, um, I'm on crutches. My toes are out. So people started making fun of my toes because I had, you know, I couldn't cover my toes. But, um, yeah, after that point, um, in my, my mind, I started to know that nothing could hurt worse than that pain. And so it made me tougher. And so the next times that I played football in the front yard after my leg healed, I was, I was a lot tougher. I was harder to tackle and uh, I ran harder. I was more confident. And so seventh grade year is kind of when I started playing football. And I, I, I don't know if it was divine ordinance or what it was, but it happened, the leg break happened at the perfect time for me to kind of stand out amongst my peers in football. And that's kind of what happened and propelled me into the whole um, football thing. Yeah. So, so Chris, breaking your leg like that, and you were going through, starting to go through puberty. I imagine that combination was probably yeah. pretty powerful. It was very powerful, but um, I don't know that I understood puberty as much as I understood pain at that particular point in time. I knew that um, it hurt like hell, and I didn't want to feel that pain again. So I would run as fast as I could to avoid it or I would hit you hard enough to where you felt it and I didn't. Uh, and and I, I imagine I was getting a little stronger around those, that time, Paul, because, you know, I, I, my, my older brothers were big dudes. My brother immediately older than me, his name is Antoine. We played football at Vanderbilt together. 
he was um, about six feet, 225, played linebacker. So I was going to get bigger anyway. Uh, so I, I guess the leg break and the puberty thing does play a role in that particular part. So how many of your brothers played college football? Just, just me and that one. Just okay. me. And, well, 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 okay. All right. So my baby brother played junior college football, but he got um, uh, in trouble, let's just say, and he was facing some very serious penalties uh, should that trouble have caught up with him. But in small town Mississippi, a lot of times what happens is that trouble tends to disappear if the family has a good name. And we were blessed enough to have a good name. And so some of that trouble started to disappear. And same was with my, my dad, who, um, you know, I kind of try and compare myself to right now. In those times, my dad was maybe 30 years old when he had six kids. Mm. So he was a little bit of a, a drinker. And I was thinking to myself, even just the other day, man, if I had even four kids right now, I would drink myself into a stupor every night. But... <laughs> and to be clear, you, you have three, so you're, you're, you're one kid away. I have three. I am, I'm, I'm close to the edge. Uh, but yeah, my younger brother got into trouble. He played college um, football. We all went to college, whether it was a junior college or a four-year university. My brother right underneath me actually played college basketball for NAIA school uh, called Martin Methodist. Um, so we were all very, very um, talented athletes, and we all were pretty solid students, too. Um, so, yeah, that was a good thing. Uh, so as time kind of went on through sixth grade, seventh grade, nothing really stood out. But coaches were starting to pay attention to what talent I could have, so much so that in my eighth grade year, um, the high school coach at the time, Coach Willis Wright, um, had given my name to the University of Tennessee as a player to watch for. I didn't find that out <clears throat> until I was being recruited uh, four years in the future. So that was pretty cool to find out. But throughout all that time, man, I loved football because it brought me closer to a lot of the friends that stayed and helped me clean up um, uh, after school. And I loved football because um, it was something to do. And it was just fun. But I never loved football because I loved the game. I didn't know the game. I just played because I was good and my friends played and they were all there. Uh, and that part will be relevant when we get to the college portion of the story, I imagine. So when you were um, playing as a kid, was it kind of seen as, as the – the thing to do was to play a sport and be good enough at it that it could be um, a ticket for, you know, a scholarship? No, not, not really. But uh, the only reason I really played was because, yes, in small towns like that, that's what you do. You play football. But I was never the kid who saw it as my path out. I always felt like there was something different. Whether I was right or wrong, I just didn't feel like football was my path out. Ninth grade, um, I actually quit football. Um, but my coach wouldn't let me quit. My coach was actually my cousin, and he wouldn't let me quit. That was, that's the kind of small town I'm from. Right. Uh, I was starting quarterback. I had a really bad practice. 
uh, couldn't remember the plays and all that crap. And I was emotional. And this was more probably puberty driven. So uh, I decided after practice one day, I'm done. I'm quitting football. I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, he taught me in the stand. You know, he guilted me, really. Oh, you're not a quitter. This is not who you are. And so I stayed on and I kind of continued the fight. Um, so that great year was fantastic. We went undefeated, all that great stuff. And uh, we went into high school. Um, now, high school was a little bit different because you start to recognize things that happen in the world. And this is where I'll give you a little bit of background on Mississippi because you're uh, kind of an out-of-towner. In 2006, I think it was, Mississippi finally voted to ratify the end of slavery. Slavery was never actually over in Mississippi until the 2000s. From, from so, a legal perspective, Chris, but th there wasn't active slavery. There was not active slavery, no. Prior to that. But every administration that passed through since 1865 decided that we're not going to ratify the end of slavery because they wanted to show an open re rebellion to the Union, apparently. Um, so in high school, uh, we started to notice my friends and I and, you know, the community at large started to notice these things that seemed off kilter um, in terms of black and white relations. I had an uncle who was a police officer who was um, subsequently killed by his fellow officers in front of his mom's home. So, yeah, that kind of that shaped a, a bit of my worldview. Um, and in Mississippi, it was really nothing to see. Uh, English teacher who was in class teaching you, her son drive around campus with uh, a black doll hanging by a noose on his rearview mirror, an epithet. What, what year did you graduate high school, Chris? I, gra I graduated in the year 2000. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. Look, look we're, uh, Daniel and I are sitting here in central Virginia. It's the capital of Confederacy from the 1860s. Uh, and that was not going on in the late 90s in Central Virginia. Hey, I know, man. I'm telling you, it's weird. I, I never went to uh, – I went to three proms during high school. I never went to an integrated prom. What? Never. Not one time, dude. What are you talking about? There was um, – the school administration orchestrated a private prom which was for white students only. And they had the school prom, which was for the black students. I never went to an, an, uh, an integrated prom. And, and that's, that's not just a, your small town. You're, you're basically saying that's That's Mississippi. That was Mississippi. In the late 90s? This is in the late 90s, yeah. The internet existed for the entire globe. <laughs> Not in Mississippi, man. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait a minute. When, when did Mississippi get the internet? I think it was like last year. I don't know. Oh, come on, come on. Hey, I love Mississippi. Don't get me wrong. I love Mississippi, but this is a place that is unlike any other place. Um, and they pride themselves on being less than progressive. Uh, pro progressivism, liberalism, all of that is used as a pejorative there. You know what I mean? Mm. So anything that advances the ball down the field 
um, doesn't necessarily play as well because it takes away from this old world view. Um, and it's uh, it's a little ironic to me because I, I look at the Confederacy as like um, history's participation trophy. Like I'm in I'm in Atlanta now, in Stone Mountain Monument. And people complain about monuments being taken down and things like that. But like that monument is essentially a trophy saying you played. It's it, you didn't win, but you played. Here you go. Right. And people fight and fight and fight for these participation trophies. But you know. My state, I think the state flag in Mississippi today is still has the Confederate flag in it. So you might want to Google that. It's, I think it's the only one. Yeah, might be. But like, that's, that's kind of my point. None of this stuff is as far-fetched as it seems. So uh, Chris, you, you kind of talked about having so, sort of an awakening or like coming to realize more and more in high school about things about Mississippi that were problematic. When you were younger, did you mostly hang out with like other black kids or or was it more mixed and then did that change if at all in high school um good question no i when i was younger my family's so large we just hung out together for the most part i didn't have a whole lot of white friends growing up and i think that's kind of the way it the way it was i played in a baseball league um sponsored by this mortuary that was basically the black mortuary um <clears throat> so it was all black all the time when I grew up. Like there is a clear divide in Batesville, Mississippi, where black people are and where white people are. And it's 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 strange to think about it kind of like looking at it from this perspective. But yeah, growing up, my experience was primarily black. Although I did have white friends in school. Um I had some white friends who were my very good friends I enjoyed playing with. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, I started playing football, gaining a little bit of notoriety, that I really had engagements with white um, people, per se. Like, my um, junior high coach name was Coach Robert Lightsey and Will Robertson. Will Robertson was my cousin, black guy. Coach Lightsey, white guy, great guy. I learned a lot from him, and his son, Brad, became one of my really good friends. Brad's really good friend, Brent Roberts, whose dad was the chemistry teacher, uh, became one of my really good friends. And this all happened after football started and as we kind of rose to the ranks of uh, our grade school. So even with those relationships, they never really went outside of the football realm. Most of my relationships and interactions outside of school were black. And I think that's kind of the way it was for most people. And, and you, our life. The, the, the mortuary that is like the black mortuary that all the black people use. How many, was that common for businesses for there to be one like for the black community and one for the white community? I think so. Yeah. I mean, cause Cooley still is, is the, the black mortuary. I, I, I don't really know what the white one is, but I know every person that passes away goes through cooling. So yeah, it was like um, this unspoken segregation that still existed. Uh, there's a clear, um, I guess, economic divide too, because the vast majority of the poverty seems to be black. And this is the South where a larger majority of the population is black. 
uh, like in South, from South Carolina all the way down that belt, Georgia, um, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, you have a larger black population based on, because of historical uh, norms from the past and all that great stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, businesses were seemingly separated. And I don't think that it was like, I wouldn't get a nasty look if I walked into a white establishment um, per se, but I was also pretty well known. My family name was well known because my mom worked as a janitor. Ironically, that's where most of our family notoriety came from. Uh, and it just so happened that I played football and my brother before me played football and he was really good. I was uh, pretty good and, you know, things like that. Mm. What about um, dating somebody of, you know, a different race? I never even considered it. I, it was not even something I thought about, man, because uh, my experience was so black. I, I didn't, like, it didn't cross my mind. I had crushes on white girls, one um, who ended up going to a Vandy nursing school. Um, but it, I, it was just not even something I considered mm. because the black women in um, black families are so strong that they, even without saying it, kind of give you your uh, marching directions when it comes to dating. That's kind of an <laughs> unwritten, unsaid uh, thing. I'm telling you. And then it, it became more explicit when I went to college. My mom said, don't you come back here with no white girl. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> what are you going to do, Mom? Hey, hey so, Chris, you're, you're describing something uh, in the late 90s that are, it's kind of flooring me. Is, is it still like that? Because you still have family down do. there, right? Is it still yeah. like that now? There is still a private prom. Um, although 2020 is kind of a, a year for change, all kinds of change. So maybe maybe not this year. But I think I asked the Facebook group uh, two years ago whether or not the private prom still happened. That does still happen. Um, There was, after um, schools integrated, um, there was an all-white school that was built called North Delta right out on the edge of our county that was 100% all-white, and it's still there. It's where um, white people sent their kids that didn't want to be integrated in the school. There's also across town this 98.99% black school that struggled for years and years and years. So the school that I went to actually was integrated pretty pretty evenly, 51 black, 49 white. Um, but there were still like places that um, my white, I guess, um, peers and their parents escaped to, to, to get back to the reality that they wanted, I think. And not to say that any of them were bad, all of them were great to me. Um, I just think that that unconsciousness of uh, a time past um, just kind of became the norm. Wow, I'm, I'm floored, man. We were talking really? to uh, a but well, if you told me 70s, 80s, I'd, I'm sure not late nineties and, and even <laughs> 2018, the private prom is still going on. I, th- that floors me, Chris floors me. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it doesn't even, 
it doesn't even phase me because it's so it seems so normal for it to happen but yeah it, it i mean the private prom every year every year even some of the guys i was telling you about um uh uh the coach's son and his son's best friend who were really good friends of mine uh they eventually admitted that they went to the private prom they apologized to me about it but like all of the kids, all of the kids knew about it, and all of them went. We were wow. not invited at all. We had no no idea. We knew it happened, but there was never the inkling that uh, you guys are invited at all. So, I guess football has its limits. I guess it does in Mississippi, anyway. <laughs> hey, so, so let's go back. Let's go back to your mom. You were helping her after school for a really long time. Were your yeah. siblings helping her too? Yeah, they were. They were. But um, like they were older. So my, my oldest brother is four years older than I am. My next to him is two years older than I am. I don't know that they helped as long as I did, but they did help. Um, my younger siblings did not help because she eventually left that, left that job um, when they were still relatively young um, and became a teacher's, a teacher's aide. But yeah, we all kind of went through that cycle of helping her and things like that. But once the older ones started getting into different extracurricular activities, um, that kind of changed. Yeah. Uh, what was it like for your sister being the only girl in a pretty large family? Man, I don't know. I, it's hard to, she's tough as hell. So I imagine it was good for her because, you know, life is, life is hard. It's not like we didn't abuse her or anything like that. And her boyfriends, we all already knew them. We know we know them by family because it's such a small town. So that part made us might have sucked for her, but yeah, we were, we were, I think old enough that we didn't give her too much crap because when she was getting in the dating age, uh, we were going to college and things like that. So we were less involved in her personal affairs. Right on. So uh, talk to us about your last couple of years in high school playing football and in general. Oh, so um, last couple of years were crazy. My, my junior year was the first year I started as the starting quarterback on varsity. We won the state championship, second state championship in the school's history. Since that point, They've won nine more and a national title. So it's a wow. powerhouse, powerhouse school, rel, uh, always nationally ranked. Um, so that year, I started off the first game, and I almost got my spot taken because I sucked the first game. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end of that year, I had rushed for 1,500 yards, thrown for 750 more. I was a running quarterback, by the way. Uh, I, I put that together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had about 16 touchdowns. We steamrolled over the team in the state championship, 52 to 17. Mm. It was the first statewide televised championship in Mississippi uh, sports, high school sports history. Um, but we were we were a really, really good team. Entering into my um, senior year is when all of the crazy happened, man. We were 16th ranked nationally. Um, I was, I found that out in Cincinnati, Ohio, because I was a part of a drama club called Risque Business. Oh, we, I didn't know this. Oh, All yeah. Right. 
Oh yeah, we traveled all across the country and we per performed skits for um, teens who could potentially be at risk. And these skits included don't drink and drive skits. They included, um, you know, know when to tell skits, all that kind of stuff. And we did this in Chicago, California, um, really all over the place, man. Uh, so I'm in Cincinnati and I'm actually um, being asked to sit on a panel with, you ever watched the movie um, Lean on Me with yeah. uh, Morgan Freeman? Yep. So he played this character, Joe Clark. I sat on a panel with Joe Clark as Come a on. senior. Yeah. In front of all 50 attorneys generals in the U.S. What? Yeah, dude. It's crazy. <laughs> Do you have a picture of you and him? No, I don't. I don't. I, it was such a, just a throwaway to me. Like I didn't understand the relevance or importance of any of this stuff. Wait, I so won. like, I'm trying to put this together. You were, it was small town, Mississippi. You were going to high school, but you were going all over the country doing these skits and sitting yep. down. Was that in, was that in your capacity as a football player? No, no, it wasn't. I was a part of an organization called Youth Crime Watch of America through this, um, this kind of acting club. Uh, and part of our responsibility was if we saw something, say something. So I got wind of uh, a student in the school who um, had a gun and planned to use it. And so I was responsible for helping stop that school shooting, that particular school shooting. So that's what got me on the panel. Um, and I, I, I assume it's what kind of propelled me into this extracurricular part of my life. Mm. But I was awarded the Yes Mississippi Award three years in a row in high school. Um, none of this had anything to do with football, I don't, I don't think. Maybe they wanted me on there because I was good at football. But yeah, <laughs> well, well, tell us more about who wins Yes Mississippi. I don't know, dude. I just got it. <laughs> Nobody ever told me what the criteria was. I just got it. Oh, three years in a row. Three years in a row. Three you, in a row. You, you won it three years in a row, and you had no idea what it took to win it. No clue. It just meant I was an upstanding citizen, Paul. That's all I took it as. Yeah. That, that's, they, they got that right. So um, going into my senior year of football, I was um, pretty starting to get a lot, of, a lot more buzz. This is when the guys from University of Tennessee told me, hey, this coach gave us your name when you were in eighth grade, um, and it looks like you've come to fruition. Uh, University of North Carolina was my first scholarship offer, and from that point, <clears throat> I got, I don't know, maybe 100 offers before I knew what was going on. Mm. Um, I was ranked, uh, in the super Southern 100. I think it was the top 25. I was number three in the state behind Jason Campbell, who played for the Redskins Yep. and Doug Buckles, who I don't know if Doug played in the league. Um, but yeah, so this whole thing was, and by the, by the way, Chris is not braggadocious. Uh, I didn't know anything about, about any of this and you and I worked together what three and a half four years yeah yeah I, this I didn't know is, any of this stuff yeah I don't I don't love necessarily talking about this part it's all good it's um, it's, it's for your uh it's for your kids man just think, think about it that mean. way yeah, so yeah. that's what I'll say um I was um 
I was playing quarterback, but I was being recruited, as you guys can imagine, for everything other than quarterback. Uh, and in truth, I sh probably should have played on the defensive side of the ball, but I, I wanted to stick with what I know in college. But um, into my senior year, um, you know, the expectations were sky high, and somehow um, I exceeded them. Uh, I played really, really well my senior year. I had one game with 381 yards rushing and four touchdowns. We lost. You we lost, lost the game? game? Lost that game. That doesn't make any on sense to me. On a controversial last play, we lost that game. Mm. Um, another game my senior year, I had 292 yards and six touchdowns. We won that one. Um, but we didn't win state championship that year. We lost mm. three games, which is the most games we had lost um, in any one season for the last half decade. So it was a pretty big deal. Um, and then came recruiting time. It's time to make a decision, which is essentially what killed my football career. Because after recruiting, I was essentially done with football as far as my spirit to do the to play the game i told you earlier i didn't necessarily love the game anyway but the recruiting part was absolute whirlwind university of alabama sent private jets to my hometown to pick mm. me up um i would subsequently be in, interviewed by the ncaa about the university of alabama and i'm one of probably one of a few reasons uh, why they were put on probation um, I think around 2000, uh, 2001, um, I had Mississippi state. I think we're outside of statute of lim limitations here. I think so. Um, paying for my senior gifts and my Jostens and things like that. Um, I was playing high school basketball and running track at the time as well. I was a really good track, uh, runner, by the way, I was a high jumper. Uh, I cleared six, 10 and three quarters. That was my high. So you, cl you cleared me plus six uh, and a quarter inches. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so um, Mississippi State was sending private jets to pick me up after um, basketball games. During my English class, I would get Auburn in my counselor's office. This is when Tommy Tuberville was the coach there, offering me scholarships. It was absolutely bananas. I would try and run and hide. I was with a buddy of mine and we went to McDonald's randomly, skipped a class to go to McDonald's. And uh, Kurt Roper, who I think is, I don't know where Coach Roper is right now, but he was sitting in the McDonald's, man, waiting on me. Mm. <laughs> hey, Chris, man, uh, I got some guys over here on campus who want to see you. And I take a trip over to campus with Coach Roper. Deuce McAllister's there. And some of the guys I went to high school with that played at Ole Miss at the time. Uh, talking to me about coming to the school, Coach Cutcliffe showing me what the new uniforms are going to look like next year, all that crazy shit, man. Um, there are a lot more stories, but we'll stop there. Was this it, common for, uh, a, like, how many players does this happen to at your high school per year, or were you kind of a, uh, an odd one out? Uh, I, was, I was pretty highly recruited in high school. Um, I was a four-star athlete. I was rated, I was the highest rated athlete to ever sign with Vanderbilt. 
<laughs> what? That's crazy. Come on, man. I didn't find that out until like a year ago when um, Saturdays Down South published this list of the highest rated players for uh, whatever school since the year 2000 or whatever it was. And yeah, my name is right there. You're at, the, the, you're at the top of that list. Number one. Oh my goodness. So what, is a, what does four star mean as opposed to like a three star, two star? Yeah, so it's a, it's a scale of one to five. Five being absolute can't miss prospect. And then it kind of gradually goes down from there. Were you the only four star so, Vanderbilt ever got? I, I don't know. I think the rating was pretty high. Like four, a five star is a 100% or greater. My um, rating was like 97%. Mm. You, so, know, you know a question. I, I, I've already asked you this, but I forgot the answer. I asked you this a couple of years ago. What was your 40 time? Uh, 4.43. <laughs> I don't understand that it kind was, of speed. It's not even that fast. It, it, like when you look at like uh, John Ross, 4.22. Yeah, I understand. It's hey. still 4.43 is still ridiculously fast. Yeah, I, I, I can admit that, Paul. I'm pretty it's, sure. It's I'm pretty sure my best time was uh, about four point nine, and I was wind aided. Wind was at my back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, four four three. Did, so, do they like come up with this rating for you based on things like the forty the forty yard, or the uh, or do the scouts come and like watch your games? Like, how does that work? You get scouts who watch a game. You have camps that you attend. Like um, Alabama paid for my paid for me to come to a football camp down there. We ran 40s during camp. We ran uh, drills during camp. All of these different things they take into consideration. They also take into consideration size and potential, competition level, and things of that nature to determine or, or how you perform against competition level. And like I told you, I was having 350 plus yard games against. Um, the top classification of football in the state of Mississippi. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that's the only, I, I don't know the scientific method behind the formula, but that's how I perceive it to be derived. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were putting results out on the field. So the natural follow-up to the, uh, the fact that, you know, you're the highest rated player ever recruited by Vanderbilt is, you know, being courted by all these other schools and all these different States. Uh, what, about Vanderbilt stood out to you? That is a great natural follow-up. So this, the, my, I originally committed to Alabama. So I had uh, Coach Mike Dubow at the time and Coach Charlie Harbison, who I think is maybe at Clemson now, um, sitting in my living room. And I committed to them there. My hometown is about 15 minutes west of Oxford, Ole Miss. So I had a lot of local pressure to go to Ole Miss. So I flipped my commitment from Alabama to Ole Miss on um, the day before signing day. That caused all kinds of hell. I had no idea. So Alabama's calling me. Ole Miss is calling me. Other schools are assuming that my recruitment's back open, so they're calling me again. And Vandy was where my brother had already been for two years. I had 
already uh, established a relationship with the city of Nashville based on him being there. And it became a really safe, safe choice. At the very least, I knew academically I would be secure. Uh, and so Vandy became my safe school after all of the hell broke loose. Uh, because be it fair or not, a 17-year-old does not, in my opinion, have the capacity to make a decision like that on their own. And my, neither one of my parents went to college. Nobody in my immediate family had gone to college at that level, except my brother. But everybody was pretty hands-off and left the decision largely up to me. And I was not uh, mature enough to make a decision that I thought was the right one for me to, in terms of football versus the right one for me in terms of security uh, and emotional safety, so to speak. So that's what Vandy became for me. And you played with your brother for a couple of years. Yeah, we played, together, we played together for two years. I heard him a couple of times too. He won't ever admit to, to that, but yeah, I played with him for a couple of years. Um, and if I'm being frank about it, um, I think my time at Vandy was less about football and more about like growing socially. My football career there, if you just looked at the stats, two touchdowns my entire career, uh, not a whole lot of receptions, but you know, the offense kind of dictates those things more than anything else. But my production, if you just looked at it on paper, was it 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 sucked um to put it bluntly but it was it was i love it like it's the time i grew up and my leadership qualities have always been what set me apart i thought and um the vandy experience kind of um it kind of made that true uh, i was voted team captain uh as a senior despite the fact that I had been suspended as a true junior for marijuana. Uh, and it was overwhelming that my teammates selected me because I worked my ass off to earn their trust back. Um, I put in the work, you know, with them socially. They, they knew me, they knew what type of person I was. And so that's the part about my Vandy experience I'm most proud of, even though, you know, uh, People look at my stats and they think, oh, whatever. Jeffrey Gold used to give me shit about it all the time. <laughs> so, I would always ask Jeffrey, how many, how many touchdowns did you catch, <laughs> In middle school, Jeffrey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I played with my brother for a couple of years at Vandy. Um, uh, one question I get asked often is, what was it like playing with Jay Cutler? I played with Jay for – Oh, that's right. Yeah. I played with Jay for three years. We were uh, teammates for four years. Uh, and I, I tell people all the time, when back in those days, Jay did not know he was type 1 diabetic. So his mood swings, as odd as they might seem, were probably natural given that he didn't know what was going on with them. But for the most part, he is exactly in real, in person, the way he seems on TV. He is an authentic guy who has some real asshole streak in him, but he has some real cool guy in him too. Uh, I can remember a time walking from class uh, and him pulling up in his Lincoln LS, which is a big deal back then, you know, college student with the Lincoln. 
Right. Uh, and he picked, he picked me up, gave me a ride to practice. No problem. But, you know, I can also remember him talking shit to everybody he came in contact with on a <laughs> random day. <laughs> I, I, I could see that. Yeah, it just depends on the type of day he's having. Um, but all in all, I think he was a pretty cool guy. I saw him, um, the last time I saw him maybe was 2008. 2010 at homecoming uh and he gave me a big bear hug you know what i mean like that's cool he, he, yeah he's a guy who likes the people he likes uh and he's an asshole to the people he doesn't like <laughs> <laughs> i guess it, i guess if you're a receiver on the vanderbilt football team when cutler's the quarterback you want to be on the uh, positive side of that you want to try to be as much as you can you so try to be. Uh, did you get any looks uh by the nfl uh no I didn't, but it's mostly because I was done with it. Um, yeah. I didn't. I didn't try out during pro day. I decided to sit it out. I wanted nothing else to do with football, uh, and that was a hard realization for me to come to after having lived my entire life uh, and it revolve around football, or at least the, that portion of my life. Uh, to just say that I was done with it was really hard. And it was especially hard for me to talk to my dad about it um, because he wanted me to continue to try. I had the skill set. Like I said, I ran a four for 340. I had a 40 inch vertical. Uh, I bench pressed um, 225, 17 times, mm. 190 pounds. Um, I squatted 450 pounds. Like I was, I, I fit all the measurables you could uh, fit. So. I would have had a, a legitimate shot, I think, but it, my time was, I thought about the game too much while I was playing it. Meaning like I thought about the potential to get injured. Um, yeah, that's not a good place to be playing football. It is absolutely not. It's the worst place to be. Um, so yeah, I made the decision that I was not going to pursue football any longer after, after college. And luckily, I limped across the finish uh, and graduated. Because Vandy's not an easy place to, to play football, first and foremost. It's not an easy place to do anything academically. Yeah, I mean, you're truly a student athlete there, right? You, you can't oh. say that for a lot of big-time football, but Vandy is – it's academics first. It is all academics first, man. Like um, Thursday night game we have against South Carolina. You go to class that entire day. I bet the guys from South Carolina didn't take their ass to class. There's no way. And they came out and they thumped us. <laughs> there, there, was, there was a lot of that. What, what was your uh, – Vandy's record your senior year? Man, I don't know. I don't know. I do know that the, the game that sticks out the most is against Georgia. At halftime, we were leading two to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 was the, who was the big name on Georgia back then? Well, there was a safety named Sean Jones. Okay. And he uh, later got, I think, drafted by the Browns. He said the worst point in his football life was trailing Bandy at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. That's all that's <laughs> That's hilarious. And so, Wait, so what happened for the rest of the game? Oh, um, you remember Thomas Davis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so rest of the game for me did not happen because I was tasked with blocking him on a crackback, and he saw me coming, 
and I got a concussion. I was throwing up on the sidelines. Oh. The rest of the game was all a blur. I bet. Wow. How many concussions yeah. did you have playing football? Oh, man, I don't know. I do not know. Um, but I know I had one that day. And the thing I remember most about Thomas Davis is the year he was drafted, he came down on kickoff in a preseason game and broke a guy's neck on the very first play. Oh. So I'm just lucky I'm not that guy. Right. <laughs> so when you were getting toward the end of uh, your college career, did you notice that a lot of your peers were going through that same decision of, should I try to go pro? Should, should I try to go for the NFL? Uh, and did, did they make the decision um, based on – because for you it seemed like it was a very mental decision and, and also you were maybe over football after all of the recruiting nonsense from high school. Do, do you think that people stopped because they – they were like physically done, like uh, I'm past my prime, I can't play anymore. Or they stopped because they decided I'm afraid of injuries, I don't want to deal with the recruiting, I don't want to get rejected. Uh, I, I think people stop playing because they feel like um, there is no emotional attachment anymore. Like um, I could see a guy like Jay in practice and know that he loved what he did. And then I could see a guy like me in practice and know that I love what I'm doing, but I love that I'm doing it with my teammates more than I love what I'm doing. Mm. Like Jay knew that he was good. He had all of the confidence. It never wavered. And he didn't think about like um, the injuries necessarily. He thought about I'm about to kick your ass. And that was his focus. Yeah. But uh, I think guys genuinely fall out of love. Like you burn out, man, because it is nonstop. Um, it's nonstop. I remember I, I mentioned that I got suspended as a true junior because I failed a drug test for marijuana. That was the hardest call I ever had to make, calling my parents, by the way. But um, part of my punishment was that I had to get up every morning at four o'clock and uh, work out with the true freshmen and the red shirts. Like I enjoyed doing that because it gave me the opportunity to show my leadership. But like, that's not something I wanted to do for my livelihood. But that's the type of dedication you had to have to be good at the game. You had, you needed to be fanatical about, the practice part and I was well beyond that so I think a lot of my contemporaries during that time yeah they were deciding but they were also deciding they had already decided a long time ago what they wanted to be like Dan Murphy for example he was a walk-on and the likelihood was Dan may never play professional football but Dan is a neurosurgeon today like the guys that were coming into Vandy, you could not tell. When I walked on campus, I couldn't tell who the scholarship guys were from the walk-on, uh, just based on physique. Like they didn't, dis they weren't distinguishable. But all of those guys were preparing for the life after football, mm. except the guys that knew they were going to play football. Like Jamie Winborn, Jimmy Williams, those guys knew they were going to play football. Um, Jay knew he was going to play football. Uh, Greg Zolman was the first quarterback uh, I had at Vandy. He wanted to try and play football, 
But even in his fifth year, he went and got his MBA from Vandy's um, School of Business because he was preparing for his life after. I think that's one of the things that distinguishes the type of person that's at Vandy from the type of person that's other places. They're already mm-hmm. preparing for the, the second part of their life. Yeah, they can, they can kind of see that, that football is not going to be forever, uh, and they're preparing yep. for that. So can you talk a little bit about the, the, so, like the leadership qualities that you developed um, part, you know, when, when you were suspended in training with the, the freshmen? And in general, you, know, you said it was a, a time of growth for you in that regard. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, the, it's often said there are the, the, the types of leaders that you follow because they're doing the thing that, that, you know, should be done in order to achieve success. And then there are the, the types of leaders that you follow because they motivate you to follow them. Uh, and I had to figure out which one of those leaders I was going to be. Like I was what, what I would call a T-shirt and practice All-American. I worked my ass off in practice because it's what was necessary to be, uh, to be good. And I think um, that's kind of the realization I came to. Even though football wasn't great to me in college, uh, I tried to give everything I could to it so that the guys that were watching me also gave what they could to it. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it worked because one of the guys, Patrick Johnson, um, he, in his fifth year, he was a kicker. Getting his MBA from Owen School of Management, he had to write uh, a paper about a leader that he admired. And he wrote that paper about me. Um, and I thought that was, that was truly something special to me. And it kind of um, solidified this understanding that that is the time that I grew the most. So I don't know if that answered the question that you'd like to have answered, but that's kind of where my mentality was from a leadership standpoint. No, that's great. Very crystallized. So lead by example was, was a, a lot of it. It was essentially, it was, yeah. it, was, it was essentially all of it. Yeah. But even if I wasn't being productive on the field, leading by example in the times that maybe no one um, uh, was necessarily watching. Yeah, I mean, to get voted captain, too, I don't know what, if that's like a popularity contest or not, but it seems like you'd have to have some kind of social ability to, like, fit in and, and, and accept people and uh, p- provide a sense of belonging. Yeah, and also to be an asshole when you need to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to go work out today? Are you going to skip that shit? I mean, like, yeah. sometimes you, it, it requires... Uh, a little bit of everything. And I think that the team recognized, one, that I had actually gone through hardships uh, in my time there and that my character stayed intact and I still dedicated myself to the work. And I cared enough to push them, push them hard, and um, also to to be a good guy to them when um, it was required. I was cool enough to have a drink with them, with anybody on the team. Uh, and so I think, you know, guys respond to that, the, the fact that you're willing to be where they are as opposed to always trying to be above. They responded to that more than anything. All right, so you graduated. Did you stay in Nashville? Did you go to Batesville? Did you go to Atlanta or some other place? Oh, man. So I, I stayed in Nashville for – Two years after I graduated. Yeah, two years after I graduated. 
So in 2005, I was sleeping on my girlfriend's couch, about to get dumped. I met my girlfriend at Vandy, by the way. She's my wife now. She is an epidemiologist. Oh, no way. Yeah, dude. Hold on. Hold on. What kind of epidemiologist? She's a breast cancer researcher. Okay. Not Got it. infectious disease. Um, so I'm sleeping on my girlfriend's couch at the time, and she's working at Dell. So I'm like, well, maybe I can get a job at Dell. So I applied, and that my first job was 2005, October 2005. I started as a temp, uh, temp guy at Dell. My shift was noon to midnight. And mm. uh, yeah, a including weekends, by the way. And I crushed it. I mean, I was the number one sales rep on the floor. I was 100% in every metric. I got um, offered a full-time gig within one month of working there uh, that I almost turned down because I thought I was making way more money than I would ever make. But like I had to because in that first month, I got me an apartment. I had no furniture. Uh, and so I'm sleeping on the floor in my apartment. And my only focus was on being successful at this job. And I absolutely crushed it. Um, and so I got promoted a, a few times there. I was only there for two and a half years. And then I moved to North Carolina, um, where I worked in a mall kiosk for Dell. I did that for about six months. I was actually going to business school at the time at uh, Keenan Flagler at UNC. And one day I was in class and one of my coworkers called and said, hey man, the kiosk is gone, bro. And I was like, what? They laid us off in the middle of the day uh, they, they came at midnight. We didn't find out until the middle of the day, the next day. Uh, and so there was like a year where I didn't have a job. And my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, all we did was travel from place to place in the U.S. Uh, off of student loan money. Uh, eventually, I found an opportunity with a company called Lenovo, who was a competitor of Dell's. And uh, I started there, made more money than I'd ever made in my entire life. It was, North Carolina move was probably the single best move I've ever made in my life and probably will be going forward, frankly. Um, but I got the opportunity to travel to Beijing and manage product, meet all these cool, uh, smart people. I stayed there for about nine years. Um, doing i worked in rtp uh and met some of my best friends uh during that time what does rtp stand for research triangle park it's where the main ibm campus is it's where um oracle is mm. it's where amazon has um a base there it's like a centralized hub that nobody knows about and it's right in the heart of um north carolina chapel hill durham and raleigh I know about it. Yeah, man. We're not too so, far from there. All right, really? Yeah. It's like a two, two and a half hour drive, maybe. Yeah, man. You should visit. I love North Carolina. So we still have a place there. My wife and I got into real estate while we were there. We started buying investment properties because we had um, disposable income at the time, really. So um, we bought properties in Atlanta, Nashville, North Carolina. Um, and anywhere else we could really find uh, at the time. And that was the time where we kind of 
created the foundation our family would start to grow from. Um, we got married in 2011 after nine years of dating. So mm. I think I, I won. It was when she was just about to dump my ass. So <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. How did, how long did you date before you asked her to marry you? Uh, eight years. She should have dumped you after year three, I man. I know. Paul, I know, man. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, she must be a good woman. Yeah, she's great. She's great. Uh, we had our first kid um, a, a year after. His name is Jaden. He broke his wrist um, Wednesday, by the way. Mm. Oof. Hope he gets better soon. Mm. Yeah, I don't want to go in hospitals right now, but we did anyway. I, well, we had our second son two years later. His name's Caleb. And then we decided that we needed to be closer to family because it's a 13-hour drive to Mississippi from North Carolina. And it was a five-hour drive, six-hour drive to Atlanta from Durham, uh, where we were. Um, a whole lot happened in between the time we were there. Uh, my younger brother had a stroke at 27. Wow. Uh, yeah, my grandparents passed away while uh, we were there in North Carolina. So there was a whole lot of life that happened during that time as well. Um, but I won't bore you with those details. And then we, we moved to Atlanta. And here we sit in um, the city of Decatur. Okay. And, and how long have you been in Atlanta? Uh, five years. Going on six years. Okay. The the first year we were here, I did not have a job. It was just like the time between Dell and Lenovo. There was a one-year gap. Uh, and so I was looking for a job for the first year that I was here. And uh, Chris Forche and I had a mutual friend from Lenovo who connected us. And I don't know if you knew this, Paul, but when I was at Dell, Chris Forche was at Dell. When I was mm -hmm. at Lenovo, Chris Forche was at Lenovo. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know he was at Dell when I was there, and he was only at Lenovo for a short time. But he brought me um, in to meet some of the guys at Green Sky. I met Jeffrey Gold. He was going to be an asshole to me, whether I wanted him to or not, and he was. But they liked me enough. You know Jeffrey's going to listen to this episode, right? Is he? Yeah, oh, I guarantee he will. Yeah, he's talking to me about the episode. He's, he's called me a couple times. So let me, <laughs> let me ask you this real quickly. You and Jeffrey Gold right now – Playing a basketball game to a hundred, what's the score? A hundred to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even going to give him one basket. <laughs> no, he would have a hundred. I'd let him win. No, oh, come on, <laughs> come, come on, come on. Hey, I love Jeffrey, man. Jeffrey was tough. He was, he was, he was tough on everybody, and that is what I appreciated his consistency. He was an equal opportunity asshole. <laughs> and I, I love that about him because you never had to second guess where you were with him. Sometimes you did because sometimes he'd come in in these moods or he'd have a migraine or something like that. But he was always very consistent with me. And he, he trusted me to an extent, he trusted me enough to let me mess up and then show me where I went wrong, but he would never do it in front of people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I learned a lot from him. So, yeah, I got a lot of love for Jeffrey. And yeah, he Jeff still sends dad, dad jokes. Yeah, I bet he does. I, I, Jeffrey doesn't want the world to know that he's actually a really good guy. I, I don't understand that about him, man. 
<laughs> hey, yeah, I just saved a boat full of orphans, uh, but don't tell anybody, okay? Like, all right, mine's different. Yeah. All right, so Chris, uh, the the private prom, which is still blowing my mind, dude. And let's assume that if COVID nineteen hadn't happened this year, it would have happened again in twenty twenty. What year does that private prom stop? When does it stop being a thing in Mississippi? Man, or, or at least in your your part of Mississippi. I don't know, Paul, because even during COVID, um, the current governor Tate Reeves um, decided in March of this year to make it National Confederate Month, National Confederacy Month. <laughs> 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 so that it's not going anywhere, dude. Come on, man. Bro, the last governor, Phil Bryant, his uncle was the guy who shot Emmett Till. Oh my uh, what are you telling me? Bro, I'm telling you that it's never gonna change. So there's never been a black governor of Mississippi. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that that's true, but I am willing to bet a substantial amount of money that it's true. Oh my gosh, you're, you're I don't know whose mind's being blown more, mine or Daniel's. The, yeah, the most interesting part of it for me is the um, like you, you having friends on the football team that you're chill with when you're playing football, and then they go and and they go to this this uh, private prom, and they know what it's about. They they know that it's like whites only and not explicitly, but like that seems to that seems to be the understanding. It's not like there's malice toward you. I, it doesn't seem like it. It just seems like this weird natural separation that is maintained by generational Dude, culture. It's a level of cognitive dissonance that it requires a psychologist to un uh, unlayer. But there was a book written about it. It's called The Banality of Evil. Um, like the things that happen to people in day-to-day life aren't necessarily uh, the evil things that happen don't necessarily jump off the page at you. They just happen gradually and then suddenly it's a problem. Um, and I think the same thing exists in my hometown. Like it wasn't a problem until it became a problem for everybody. So it was just this banal thing that happened year after year after year. Oh yeah, we got the private prom. There was mm. never any malice behind it, but it still uh, in its origins, an evil thing. So, you know, yeah, it, it, it's definitely something worth exploring. Yeah. I just don't have the, the desire to, because I'm so used to it. To- wildly uh, switching topics here. So we ask a question every uh, episode. I think we've asked it every time except for one episode. Yeah. And this is a would you rather kind of thing. Imagine you're 25 years old. Right. You're, not, you're not married. You're not even dating. Your only responsibility is yourself. And, oh, and you're at a crossroads. And you have the opportunity to either do stand-up comedy or okay. join the military. The military is four years of active duty service, any branch. And the comedy is every week you are writing and delivering material in front of strangers. I, I, mean, would, join the, I would join the military. Okay. Why? Because my current brain thinks that military service holds more value long-term than stand-up comedy. You can be a politician with military service. You can be a business leader with military service. There are so many other umpteen thousands of things you could be with military service. You can stay in the military. 
Um, so you're taking the long, long, long-term value and long-term view. Yeah, man. Plus, my dad is uh, a veteran. My dad's an Iraq war vet. So that part, that part kind of sticks out, too. He was in Desert Storm? No, he was in the Bush, Bush's Iraq war. Wow. W's. So he was there in, what, 03, 04? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is your dad still around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still alive. Okay. Well, uh, next time you talk to him, tell him I appreciate his service. Will do. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, military. So I think we actually, out of our, all of our guests, it's like 60-40 military, I think. Yeah. Uh, who, yeah. Who wanted to be a stand-up comedian? A, a bunch of people lately that we've been talking my, to. Yeah. My jokes yeah. suck. My delivery yeah. is more. <laughs> it's hard. Comedy's it hard. Yeah, and, but it's, it's interesting because everybody gives a different reason. And I think that the long-term value is a – it's a – I haven't heard that. Yeah, we haven't heard that one yet. That was a really thoughtful answer, Chris. A lot of people, a lot of people, the reason that a lot of people went for comedy was uh, fear of death. I mean, like, because <laughs> we, we said you might get deployed and they said, I don't want to go catch a bullet. So the stat back in the day, this is like 10, 12 years ago, was out of everybody who's ever worn a uniform, only 10% ends up in a combat zone. Wow. Think about the infrastructure it takes to uh, start a war, to maintain a war. Mm. There's a lot going on all over the world just to maintain the U.S. military. Mm. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. right? Cool. Hey, so, Chris, what, what else you want to tell us about? You hear my eight-month-old? Yeah. I do. Did you say whether you have a boy or a girl? I have three boys. Oh, my gosh. My dad had six boys and one girl. I ended up with three boys, so I stopped. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I know families that have had five boys or five girls, and they, and they kept going just because they wanted to have the other gender. And I'm like, at some point, you got to stop. You got to yeah. stop. <laughs> cool, man. Well, hey, Chris, this is a lot of fun, man. I, I learned, I think 80% of what you said tonight was all new to me. Maybe more <laughs> than that. Uh, but, no, it's good. I, I think your kids will love listening to this someday. I hope you... Uh, share this with your friends and family. I think they'll enjoy listening to it as well. Yeah. We really appreciate you joining us, man. I, I uh, can't thank you enough. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Chris. Here's the addendum with Chris and his wife, Lauren, and their valuable takes on the current situation. So um, on the phone call, Paul, I told you black friends are valuable things these days. So, uh, so uh, that still holds true because everybody wants to talk now. Uh, and I think one of the challenges with that is personally, now my wife is a bit different from me in, in this regard, but personally, I don't like watching um, like Glory Road, the movies where all black cast have to overcome all of this uh, stuff working against them because that is exhausting to me. And so the constant conversations about what's going on now is equally, if not more exhausting, especially since they don't tend to go very many places. Um, this time feels different though. Uh, it feels different for a lot of different reasons and I'm not necessarily sure why 
George Floyd's death kind of kickstarted this whole thing, but it has, and it is it, like there there is literally um, an optimism for change that exists that hasn't existed in a, in a very long time. Um, one of the things I mentioned to you also, Paul, was that Lauren and I had a conversation with our neighbors. It's like this collective not group of nine or 10 or uh, 12 houses on the two um, adjacent streets. Um, we were sitting right in front of them like king and queen. It was all weird and stuff, as weird as you think it would be, you know what I mean? And all these white people looking at us and saying, hey, we just want to listen. And I'm like, this is weird as hell, but let's do it. And so <laughs> we started having a conversation about, you know, everything that's going on. And, you know, the more I talk about it and the more I hear about it, I realize why I'm exhausted because I'm, I'm so upset about everything that's happening. And I feel like there is nothing I can do. Like I'm the guy that, that just, let's just get it done. Let's just get this thing done and move on with it. Um, and <coughs> this feels, or, or prior to this, felt like there's just nothing that anybody's willing to do. It's a system that I'm fighting against. And no matter if I uh, uh, win in my neighborhood, I'm gonna lose in Atlanta proper. You know what I mean? Um, but this time feels a little different. I'm still exhausted. I'm still angry about it. But my wife is more of the take action kind of person. So uh, I'll let her talk to you about some of the things that we talked to our neighbors about and some of the initiatives she suggested, you know. I think she's going to get my notebook. No, I'm just playing. She did. Have three pages of notes. I did have three pages Horrible. of notes. Um, That's great. Yeah, I mean, so where do you start and, and be um, concise and brief? You know, I, I sort of had the same sentiments as Chris, like, why this moment? Why now? Police have been killing Black men since forever. Um, and I think we are in a unique spot in our history in that we have a global pandemic, that we have a national uprising, that we have an economic crisis. Um, and I like to say we have a president, the likes of which we haven't seen before. Um, but the former three all disproportionately affect African-Americans, right? You know, the COVID pandemic is affecting everybody. We're held up in our houses. We can't go to work. Kids can't go to school. But 70% of essential workers are Black. Um, more than 40% of people dying from COVID are Black. Um, and then obviously you have everything happening with race. And so I think the synergy around all those things has really struck a chord with not just black people, but, you know, most Americans and the fact that everybody is sitting still because of this pandemic, you have to pay attention to it. And I think that's why this is getting the attention that quite honestly, it deserved decades ago. Um, and so, you know, in talking to our neighbors, I think one of the important components that I started the conversation with is that none of this is novel. <laughs> this is novel to white America who hasn't been paying attention. But in some regards, like this has been explained in our books. This has been explained in our reps. This has been demonstrated by our athletes. And now all of a sudden everybody's paying attention to a cry that has been given for decades. Um, 
But I think what we haven't done a good job of, particularly, I can speak for Chris and myself, but I think generally Black people is that when things happen, we have been trained, we have been automated to keep things inside, to put on your smile. Somebody asks, how are you doing? Well, thank you. How are you? Instead of, my life is shit right now because my world is burning around me. I'm watching my people die, my neighborhoods go poor, and my husbands, my sons, my uncles being killed on the street. But that's not what we're programmed to do. We are programmed from a very young age to adapt to white norms. And I think that adaptation and not really putting um, pressure. Well, putting pressure, but like not exposing the realities that we live with every day um, we, has, has been a disservice to us. Um, because, you know, as Chris and I were just talking about, I think we have allies and in, in our colleagues and in our neighbors, but if they don't know what's happening, like nobody can advocate for you, right? And so I think for the first time we're seeing some of those stories coming out, whether it's because now we have a video camera to capture it, or whether it's because now we're feeling like this is a safe place in time to be able to speak freely, in quotes. Um, I think that's why we're seeing some of what we're seeing. Um, so I'm going to pause there. I don't know if you guys like want this to be a dialogue or what. <laughs> no, th this could be whatever you guys want to make it. Uh, Chris, you have married an extremely thoughtful uh, and bright woman. Oh, man. Trust me. I know. And it is frustrating as hell. <laughs> Thank you. For <laughs> so I'm just curious, because uh, this has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, as you two are growing up, have you know, known anything to change since that time? Yeah. Go ahead. So we, <laughs> so the environments we grew up in, I think we're all we're different. Um, like I grew up in an all black neighborhood. Ninety nine point nine percent were black. Ninety nine point nine percent of the people in my high school were black. And so I was exposed to white people through like extracurriculars, et cetera. But it wasn't until I went to Vanderbilt that they were a part of my everyday conscience. And so it's hard to say whether or not you know from Vanderbilt forward whether they've changed or whether I've adapted. Um, mm. I think as I have found my voice and as I have found my strength, I feel more confident in having those conversations in uncomfortable places. Um, but I think more than the system changing or them changing, I've changed and I've learned, ooh, this is a, this is a room where I can't really talk about race and race relations, or maybe these people are open. Maybe I can bring up this subject. Like learning to navigate these different environments is I think what has changed for me. Mm. Yeah, and for me, initially, um, the change was all me. Um, you don't necessarily, um, I, the, why would the world change if 80% if, uh, of the people living in it think it's perfect? Like in their minds, pro progress was happening. So for me, with that in mind, um, what I learned to do was put on better camouflage. And so uh, we move in a neighborhood that allows us to be camouflaged from the things that would be a threat to us, i.e. the police. You buy a car that would allow you to be camouflaged from the things that would be a threat to you. You put your kids in schools that would allow them to learn how to adapt in a world where they can wear the best camouflage, so to speak. Uh, and I think um, when I got a little older, I became a little bit more outspoken uh, about things that have to do with race. And I, I say things that make people uncomfortable all the time, all the time. Uh, and I think it took a little bit of time to get to a point where I felt comfortable um, 
putting race on the table, making that uh, a, point of a point of conversation because I didn't feel like I had uh, the power behind my voice. I think one of the things that has changed now that did not exist then is um, something that was quite refreshing and I didn't realize how refreshing it would be, but feeling heard, you know, sometimes I tell my wife, you're not listening to me, you're not listening to me. She's like, I heard you, I'm listening to you. <laughs> but like right now, at this point in, in time in history, people are literally listening. Like I, I, I was talking to a partner we were trying to partner with and uh, one of the ladies brought it up on a conference call with mixed company. And I'm thinking, all right, well, this is kind of weird, but since you put it out there, I'm the guy to, to talk to, talk, talk to about it. Uh, but actually having um, people sit and listen to the experience uh, and do more than that, but, take my experience and be willing to take action on my behalf. Um, that's a refreshing concept. And that's something that I couldn't imagine happening. And um, is that, have you just noticed that in the last week, let's say, or, or have you, have you been noticing that, you know, in the last few years? Yeah, I, I've noticed it in the last like three weeks, man. Everybody's all <laughs> I remember, I remember, so we, we, we attended a church when we moved to Atlanta four or five years ago. We attended a church. It's like 25 members total, and they got this small Black Lives Matter ministry. This is two years ago, three years ago. Oh, man, Black Lives Matter was such a fringe kind of concept outside of Black America that when my kids wore their Black Lives Matter shirts, I felt uncomfortable for them. I felt like somebody would try to take a shot at my kids, not like a little shot, but like, you know, yeah. I didn't want them judged because, you know, of what we believe, even if they didn't completely understand it or especially because of that. But now Black Lives Matter is the, it's like Pepsi. It's like a brand name. Mm -hmm. now. So you see it everywhere. It's uh, all over people's lawns and things like that. So uh, yeah, it's a very, it feels like a very recent event who knows what people were thinking inside their hearts. I just feel like now people are more apt to say something or more apt to put out there that they support this cause. And mm -hmm. I actually think it's because of all of the factors that are happening. Uh, I, I, I don't know how you guys are with divinity, but uh, God has a hand in everything in the black community that you should know about. Um, and so I think COVID um, and its um, racial makeup, I think racial relations, I think Trump being in office, I think the economic woes, I think all of these things created this soup in 2020 and it just boiled over onto the stove and something had to be done about it. Somebody had to clean it up. Uh, and so right now we're in the process of being in America's kitchen, if you will, with a horrible chef who is our president and everybody else just trying to pick up and clean up the mess that's left behind. Uh, and I think it's all divinely driven, frankly, because I, it, it, it's been centuries, really. Are you guys hopeful, the, the two of you, that this kind of weird, this like cultural Trans transition like something like a switch has been flipped in the last three weeks are you guys hopeful that that's going to last and carry and there will be like a you know pre-george floyd and post-george floyd kind of thing 
Yeah, I, I definitely think there is a pre-George Floyd slash, there's a pre-2020 and post-2020. I think too much has happened this year for this not to be sort of a cinemal um, moment in, in, in time. Um, am I optimistic about the path forward and sort of the momentum that's been built? Yes, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I think people are motivated. Um, I think there, there's, people are starting to feel encouraged. Um, this is what we different. Yeah, we, we have a little bit of a difference. <laughs> um, but I also, I am coming from a place where this is what I, the, I think about these things in my work life. So the, these are the issues I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I feel like I'm well positioned to understand the scope of this and the scope is huge. Like if you just think about it from a historical perspective, 400 years of slavery plus 120 plus years of reconstruction and civil rights, we're only 40 years outside of that period. And so in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years, are we gonna change the past 400 plus years and undo all the things that have happened no, I don't, I don't think that that is possible in our lifetime, but my hope is that like for our kids, they will see some of the benefit of what's happening now. Um, the scope is huge and the scope is large. And what I've been telling people is that take off your part of it. Like if you're really passionate about health equity, go that route. If you're really passionate about education equity, housing equity, police brutality, whatever that is, like take off that piece because I am worried, worried about burn, burnout and fatigue. Um, everybody's been black for the last three weeks and everybody's tired. <laughs> and so my thing is try doing this for, for 55, 65, 70 years. Like this is a marathon, it is not a sprint. And people I think are gonna get burnt out. They're gonna say it's too much. I cannot take it mentally. I, I don't have it. to take it. And they don't have to. And that's the piece that I'm really concerned about. And so I want people to latch on to something that they're passionate about and just go for that because it's, it's systemic, right? Like, there were systems, there were laws put into place that are not just going to be undone overnight. Um, so that's my thought. You just, you hijacked mine completely. You completely hijacked my pessimism. What? How did it, she went optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. For, for our listeners who won't see the video of this, uh, Lauren grabbed Chris's chin in an adorable sort of fashion saying, that's adorable, Chris. By the way, before we move to Chris, let's just introduce the fact, Lauren, you're an epidemiologist, right? I am. And you said that you work with, uh, like on the ground a lot in your day to day or with these people. So, so what's your day to day? So I am a um, cancer epidemiologist by training. Most of my research is around breast cancer disparities um, and mortality and recurrence. So I'm always um, I'm trained as a molecular epidemiologist, so I think a lot about the biology of carcinogenesis in tumors, but I also think about how the environment and people's lived experience actually perturbs that biology. And so I'm constantly having to think about, well, what's happening under the skin, but then also what's happening on top of the skin that's then driving carcinogenesis. Um, so my research is totally focused on improving outcomes among minority and low-income women. So, Lauren, you're going to be back on this uh, podcast <laughs> without your husband, Chris, because uh, I think you have a lot to t tell us and a lot to educate us on. Uh, and I'm, I'm very personally interested in what you've been studying uh, deeply for a long time. Me too. 
Hey, so I, I think there's this notion, Chris, of you said, well, I, I can I can figure it out for my neighborhood. I think I can get my neighborhood to a better place. I can get them on that path where we can incrementally get better over a long period of time. But I feel if I if I think about Atlanta proper, it just feels too much. Well, I don't think anybody's asking Chris Young to put Atlanta proper on his back. But I think we are asking Daniel, me, the two of you, everybody else who cares about all the right things and getting to the better place to just do our part. And I think if the 80% plus, we'll call it 15 to 18% get on the same path, I think we'll get there. But Lord, I agree. It is going to take a while. You, you think there's merit to what I'm saying? Start local. And, it will, and as long as each location across the country is taking care of their own and there will be exceptions, see the rest of your, uh, the recording we did with you, Chris, there will be exceptions to what we're talking about. Yeah, I, th sure. I, I think we can take what has been the plight of 15% of the population and turn it into the plight for 95% of the population to get together and try to find solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's one of the things that, you know, having conversations among, you know, our sort of inner circles of, you know, fellow African Americans is one of the things that Chris and I really try and highlight, you know, we, no matter what, we still represent a small proportion of the population. And so, you know, if we're trying to mobilize communities, cities, states, this nation, it's not going to be done by the 15%. Like we're going to need allies. We're going to need help. And my slogan has been, we didn't create this problem, so we can't really fix it. We also don't have the power structures to fix it because the power was taken away from us. And so I absolutely agree that, you know, it is incumbent upon the majority to use their leverage, to use their place um, of power to, to help um, sort of deal with, the current situation that we find ourselves in. And see, my pessimistic mind says, um, we, we have been for a very long time a fast food society and the flavor of the day excites us until it doesn't. Uh, and I, I read a meme that said 2020 essentially started with a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Nobody's thinking about that chicken sandwich anymore because something else came up. You know what I mean? So. Right, right. If, if after this moment passes, nothing has changed, then nothing will change. Because, and, and, and I think there's real danger that this moment passes and nothing changes. And that's primarily because of what we have in leadership. If we all buy in to what is being done here and our leadership, the men and women we vote into office or don't vote for and who end up in office don't make changes in the law structure, then this moment passes without another uh, glancing blow. What we need to do is, I don't know how we do it, but what we need to do is seize upon this moment before something else big happens. This is 2020 and we're halfway through it. And so a lot of stuff can happen from now until then. But what we need to do is figure out how we can make change happen now. And this is not a noun problem. And so in my pessimistic mind, if this is not a noun problem and we cannot get things to change now, are things really gonna change? And uh, history says no. Black history at least says no. Um, I think um, Black History Month 2021 is gonna be a very festive occasion because so many people are, are, are bought in, but um, in terms of really changing the direction of Black American plight, 
it's going to be tough, man. We had a kid who, who's, who's, uh, uncle is, um, on the Georgia Supreme court, wave a gun around on a video a few weeks ago here in Decatur, the liberal bastion of Georgia talking about killing N words. Um, like this is a few weeks ago, and this is the fourth instance in that same few weeks of similar type situations. Like family says, we didn't teach them, we didn't raise them that way, we didn't teach them. But that that is always the I I, I think it's the mentality when there is um, kind of this um, I don't know when you teach your kids that. You know, you don't play with the kid that that's not as good as you. Like, I have a neighbor who says, I tell my son not to play basketball against someone who's not as good as him because he won't get better. And I think that is the type of behavior that snowballs into I'm better than you, so I cannot be in your group. And that's the kind of behavior that leads to someone getting on camera with a gun saying, I'm going to kill these N-words because I think you're lesser than I am. Uh, and we don't have enough people saying, hey, we're not going to teach that way anymore. We don't have enough people teaching a counterculture to white supremacy. Uh, and I, I think that's a big kind of hurdle to overcome. And I, I'm, I'm pessimistic on it, honestly. It, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> uh, it, it feels super daunting. And look, I, I have uh, a guy I work with who said, hey, Paul, can we talk about what happened uh, to George Floyd at work? And I, it, this was a text. And I said, I wow, I've, I've been in corporate America a long time. You just don't talk about this sort of thing. But I called him and over, I don't know, 15, 20 minute conversation, he had convinced me that we should be talking about it at work. And so we're talking about it with everybody that I can talk to inside the workplace. And I'm, we're certainly having conversations outside the workplace because it's a lot, uh, it's simpler and uh, easier, I think, to have those conversations. Yeah. But here's the cool thing. Look, I, and this is the first 51 years of my life in, in a few months, I was on the sideline. I was part of the 80% that didn't have to worry about it. Now I'm worrying about it and I'm trying to figure out how I can actively be good because the reality before George Floyd was senselessly murdered was there's a small percentage that was actively doing good. There was another small percentage actively doing bad. And then there were a bunch of other people who had the privilege not to worry about it. And now I think you're going to get a bunch of people off the sidelines. And now the challenge will be, what are the good ideas and can we sustain it? Mm -hmm. And yep. so I, I'm, I'm with Lauren. I think it's going to take a long time, but I'm optimistic we're going to get to a better place. Oh, Paul, you're going to turn your back on me like that, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, for 20 minutes. And you're already <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the, the fast food society, you called it, you, you know, just one week, it's one thing, the next week, it's something else. And, and uh, that, that's probably, I've just seen enough of social media to kind of be, be on your side there, Chris, with the fact that I think the, the Twitter mob and the Instagram mob, like, I don't know what it'll be next week or two weeks from now, but there's going to be something, yeah. uh, you know, murder hornets or whatever that like fires in Australia. And uh there's going to need to be some like resoluteness to say, Hey, uh, let's, you know, just because the news cycle has decided to pick something else up because it gets better ratings and more attention doesn't mean that those, these problems have just gone away. So you need to, we need to figure out how to get people to put skin in the game now. And that's the hard, hard thing to do. Um, one of the things I mentioned to the neighbors outside was um, introduce 
a black author to your kids uh, and start there, you know, mm. human, start to humanize the people that you really may not pay attention to, um, I, I don't know, in everyday life. Start to humanize the janitor. Um, start to humanize the garbage man. Start to humanize the people that are doing all of these service-related things to you, uh, for you on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, you know, and maybe start there, but it's, it's, it's tough. And I think even more than that, like, show your kids something else. Like, my frustration is that, you know, a, a white kid that's not had a whole lot of exposure with Blacks attribute those roles that are service roles to Blacks. I mean, I got at my son's pre-K pre school, got called the bus driver, and Jaden could not understand. He was like, Mommy, you're a doctor, teacher, scientist. Why does he think you're a bus driver? Well, that's probably because that's all that kid sees. Bus drivers, janitors, cafeteria ladies. And so I think it's also important to show, you know, young white kids that we are more than just athletes and rappers and service people. Like there, we have people working at NASA. We're scientists. We're engineers. We're inventors. We are all of these amazing and wonderful things that we're not exposed to because our kids are sitting in school learning about daggone Oglethorpe. Who, who cares? Oglethorpe. I don't know Oglethorpe either. I don't either. Edit my part out. Go with her part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just, I, I think it's a cultural shift. Um, and I've been saying to people that as much work as I think we put in as parents of particularly black boys, you know, teaching them respect authority, like don't go in anybody's backyard. Like right now you're cute, but when you're 14, you're gonna be a threat. And so we're, we're trying to prepare them for when they're a threat, which is work every single day. It's work on our part, it's work on their part. It's really unbeknownst to them, but that same amount of work needs to be done by white parents for their kids so that their kids can be an advocate for my kid if that day and time comes later. Um, and so like we share it with our neighbors and I'll share it with you guys and your listeners, like there are four E's, educate, which means read black authors, understand the plight, right? Um, engage in whatever capacity you can, my suggestion was find something that's meaningful to you and really just put your heart into that. Empower, which means basically like um, find ways to support support Blacks, whether it's through businesses, whether, whether it's monetary donations, but find a Black um, initiative to support. And then the last one is just finally say enough. If you see racism, how, whether it's overt or whether it's microaggressions, like step in and say, no, this isn't right. I think the more um, consistent we are with calling things out, um, it becomes easier. Um, so those are the four E's we kind of left our neighbors with um, in terms of ways for it. Um, and that was, that was the end result of my three pages of writing that Chris was teasing me about. Right, and this was when you were with the neighbors, that's where the thought started or uh, that's where they culminated? That's where it culminated. So I spent a whole day just writing thoughts and notes in preparation for this meeting with the neighbors. And that's what I finally arrived at after writing three pages of notes. That's, uh, I, I wrote them down. So it's, it's pretty good stuff, Lauren. Good, pass it along. Yeah. It, it, it might become a national thing. Forget Atlanta proper, it might go nationwide. <laughs>
I think it will. Especially now that you've been on this podcast, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> a quick question. So uh, have you guys seen any uh, missteps of well-intentioned people that are that have kind of like been counterproductive that white people, for example, might want to look out for? Um, you know, I, some, yes. <laughs> some white people are tone deaf about things. Um, you know, when this first started happening, getting emails like, well, what can I do? You're smart. You can figure that out. You don't have to ask me. Like, we're, we're tired, right? Um, and, and I look at it as it's all well intended, right? Like, I'm not going to fault them for it or judge them for it. But um, yeah, there, there are, I think, a lot of instances of just being tone deaf and not really understanding um, but on the other side, like we're in a very unique situation. I, I probably wouldn't know how to react if I wasn't living the experience every day. Yeah, um, it's tough. I, I think at the end of the day, for me, as long as you're coming from a place of genuine concern and care and really self-reflection, no matter what you say, like I'm on your side, right? Because if you're saying I'm ignorant to this situation, like I want to be better informed, I'll point you to a website that's going to have resources, right? But if it's just, oh, how are you feeling today? When I know you don't really give two craps about how I feel, like that that seems disingenuous and um, that's frustrating. Or like, I'm going to go ask you what I can do so then I can go around and turn around and tell my friends that I have black friends and I ask them that's what right. I can do to help. I got a guy. I got that. Yeah. Guy. <laughs> Told you. Like, Token. Black friends, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... All right, look, if you go with my theory that a lot of white America is waking up and they actually want to go down the right path, uh, but they, they, they aren't accustomed to having real conversation. They're not accustomed to having um, real debate. And I think I'm, I'm speaking for myself only. Oh, actually, I'm not speaking for myself. I, I am not afraid to, to ask certain things for fear that I may have mildly offended somebody because I think those discomforting conversations can lead to productive outcomes. So is the, and look, I'm going to ask the, is there anything that w white America can use to uh, improve and continue the conversation uh, on this path that Laura and I are describing? I would say um, you, you, part of it is educating yourself. There's, there's very little more frustrating than debate, debating the merits of racism without having the privilege of experience, but the next step up from experience is um, kind of empathy, I think. You gain that empathy by uh, understanding what the examples are, understanding kind of the history of it uh, and how it manifests itself in different ways in different systemic uh, points throughout our nation. So I would read uh, black authors, not necessarily um, children's books or anything like that, Paul, but like race matters. Was that a comment about my uh, literacy? <laughs> race yeah. matters was one of the first books I read um, by um, Dr. Cornell West. And I thought it was a very good um, uh, illustration about how hope becomes nihilism or hopelessness and how crime kind of derives from, from uh, that pool of hopelessness. Uh, and it talks through kind of um, some of the systemic drivers that push specifically young kids in this book 
from that place of hope to that place of hopelessness. So like, I think understanding more about those learned experiences help. You know, I, I think, because we have a lot of um, white friends who ask us questions. And I think to, I, mean, I hate to sleep, speak for like all black people, but we're like really open. We're really open people. We are. Um, and I think like, if there are people that you feel comfortable enough to go to and say, hey, I'm admitting my ignorance. I don't know a whole lot about this, but I've done some soul searching and I feel like these are the areas where, you know, I'm failing or I can do better. You know, can, can you explain X, Y, or Z to me? Like I've had people ask me like, is the term black, is the term African-American, you know? I, I think as a whole, we are really welcoming people. And I think as long as, again, things are coming from a place of honesty and truth um, that, that like we're willing to hold hands along the way. Hey, so this moment where Chris describes you, you, you and he being the king and queen of the neighborhood for the moment, how, how did that come about? I mean, obviously the, the macro view, I, I understand the macro, but how, how did, like in the moment, how did that come together? Um, it, it was mostly because of social distancing, like everybody kind of met at our porch. And because we had Austin, who I was feeding dinner, I had to roll his high chair out. So we were ended up on the sidewalk, whereas everybody else was kind of like dispersed along the street. Um, and so it was this very sort of interesting um, sort of change of roles, because I kind of feel like we're the outcasts of the neighborhood in a lot of ways. Um, but in that moment, we were kind of front and center and everybody was like ready to listen. Um, did feeling like the outcast come from, uh, did it have to do with you guys being black and everybody else being white? Yeah, I mean, it's a number of things. It's, um, you know, that we're black. Um, it's that we are one of the few dual working households in this area. This area has the largest number of stay-at-home parents than any other zip code in the state. Um, wow. So are we miss out on a lot, right? Like we're at work, our kids are riding the bus to the YMCA for after school and parents are walking, they're meeting up to pick up their Getting kids. Getting popsicles after school. They're going to the playground, the kids are playing we pull up at five o'clock and kids are going inside. And so our, we ju our kids have just missed out on that experience by nature of, you know, the fact that we have a two working household um, family. And, you know, it's, it's not lost on our kids. I was dropping Jaden off at the YMCA for a fall break or spring break or something. And he was just like, why, why don't you stay home like other kids' moms? Um, and so that was a whole conversation on, you know, the work that I do and why it's important for me, why it's important for him, and that he's helping to save people's lives because of the fact that he allows our family to have these dual roles. Um, and he was like, okay, I'm, he said, even in Mexico, <laughs> we're saving lives in Mexico. I was like, uh, yeah, yes, and so, yeah, we just have a different household dynamic than, you know, 90% of everyone else that lives in this neighborhood. And we teach our kids differently. Like a lot of the boys who Jaden would play with, they come and go as they want. 
through in and out of backyards and so on and so forth, um, which is one of the things we brought up earlier. And that's strictly a no-no. Even for me, I, I knock on my neighbor's door and ask permission and I live 20 feet from them and have for the last four years. <coughs> so I think, yeah, it's part because we're black, but also the experience of a dual working household. So then they, they set up a uh, meeting to because they wanted to listen? Well, we had gotten a few texts and phone calls from a few neighbors that were just like, it's a lot going on in the world. We're just checking on you guys. Um, and we, we were wrestling with, you know, all these, the full knowledge of our experience. And I think that initial feeling that we can't keep this experience bottled up because we can't ask for allies if they don't know what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. And so that morning I was, I told Chris, I was like, I'm going to send out a text and see if the neighbors want to meet. And by that afternoon, that evening, 730, you know, pretty much every house that we text had text was, was there. Um, not, not necessarily ready to talk, but I think at least ready to listen. That's, that's wow. pretty po powerful stuff, uh, Lauren. I, I He's telling it short, by the way. I, 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 I'm picking that up. I'm picking yeah. that up quite a bit, actually. Yeah, There's Lauren, I, I think that's awesome. Just uh, keep the pessimists uh, coming to those discussions with you. <laughs> Haters gonna hate, Paul. <laughs> you gotta have both sides. I'm a great debater. Right. <laughs>